Well, hello and welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that looks at the history of war in breadth and depth. I'm your co-host, Professor Gary Sheffield, and I'm joined by Dr. Spencer Jones. Okay, Spence. Well, today we're having another look at the historiography of Britain in the First World War, specifically the Western Front. We've looked at the early period, you know, from the First World War up to basically 1960. We've looked at John Terrain, one of the most important historians of Britain in the First World War in this period. And now we're looking at from Terrain up to, well, the beginning of the centenary period of the First World War in 2014, roughly. But I suppose anybody listening to this might reasonably ask, why does all this stuff matter? Why does it matter what people have written about the First World War? It's a very legitimate question because it's very easy for us academics to fall into debates about how many angels you can fit on the head of a pin and all that kind of thing. But I think what this debate about the First World War really shows is what a living thing history is. And those listeners who followed us from episode one on this topic onwards will will have seen or heard, I should say, that we've gone from the history of the First World War as seen through the lenses of Buzz Littlehart and David Lloyd George. And that history wasn't entirely accurate, to say the least. We've moved through John Terrain and his one-man war, or nearly one-man war, against this view into the current era as well. And if anything else, I I hope that the listeners can see that this is why history is in some ways such an exciting subject. It's Although the events that we study are static, they're in the past, our interpretation of them are very much alive and evolve and change as new evidence comes to light and we explore these. And I think that's what makes history so exciting. And it's what brings, certainly what brings me to the field every single day of my working life. And I hope if you're a listener and you're listening to this and thinking, oh, this is really interesting. There's so much more to learn. There's so many more interpretations to have. Then I hope you dip your feet in the field, to be quite honest. Well, yeah, I mean, I I agree with all of that. Also, I think particularly about the First World War, in in a very real sense for many people, it isn't actually history. It's sort of current current affairs, which is both a strength and a weakness. I think it's a weakness in that, when we can better regard it just as being history, but it's also a strength in that it still fires people up. People get very impassioned, and that's something we're going to be looking at in this uh, in this podcast. Mm. And of course, it still matters to us that what mm. Britain did in the First World War was good, bad, indifferent. It was incompetently conducted. It was well conducted. I think it still shows shines a light on us today as Brits. So sorry to anybody out there who's not from Britain. Um, but I think it really is still such a key part of being British, for better or mm. worse, uh, the mm. way that we do the First World War. Uh, if I can just expand on that as well, I think it, it plays such a role beyond Britain too. So if you think about Australia, New Zealand and Anzac Day, the um, role of Vimian Canadian national identity, and, and even in Europe, uh, Hungary, for example, is still absolutely caught up with the memory of the First World War and what happened to Hungary afterwards as well. So the legacies of the First World War are, are everywhere and they continue to shape the world. As we're recording this at this exact moment in uh, October uh, 2023, there's war in the Middle East, for example, which that can be tra- in some ways can be traced back to the events of the fall of the Ottoman Empire at the end of that war. There's an ongoing war in Ukraine and just about the relevance of the First World War there. I know when that the war entered its more attritional phase and there were so many casual references to the First World War and to describe the combat because 
there's a sort of cultural memory in the English-speaking world that in the trenches implies mud, blood, barbed wire, and so on. And that was used a lot to describe the conditions in uh, on the Eastern Front in between Ukraine and Russia. So it's part of our language. It's part of our culture. It's left a, a mark that isn't always visible, but is always there. And, and that's what makes study of the First World War so endlessly fascinating and, and rewarding and necessary, I'd say, Gary. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Okay, well, moving on to look at the scholars and the the books that we'll be examining today. Um, we're starting actually with a, a Canadian scholar. I, th I think he was originally a Brit, but certainly spent most of his career in Canada. Tim Travers. Now, a really, really significant figure. So where would you start to look at Travers's work? So first, Tim Travers, he spent most of his career at the University of Calgary in Canada. And wrote widely, not only on the, the First World War, but, but also on the Edwardian army, so the period just before it. And when I came to the field in the, the late noughties, Tim Travers was really the starting point for, for people who were studying particularly the Edwardian side of the army, which I ultimately do my, my PhD on. And he wrote a very, very large body of work, articles, book reviews, shorter pieces. But he wrote two really significant books about the First World War. The first was called The Killing Ground, and that's what we're going to be talking about. And the second is called How the War Was Won, which, in my opinion, is a less influential uh, and in some ways, a, 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 and I don't want to prejudice this with the word, but it's, it's a somewhat inferior book, in my opinion, to The Killing Ground. Because The Killing Ground was, when it came out, and indeed it still is, and I can pay testament to this, because I was recently at a conference in the USA where The Killing Ground book was still being very vigorously discussed the killing ground was actually a, a a hugely influential book uh and indeed it continues to be the, the premise of the, the killing ground is it's a book about how and why the british army fought the way it did in the first world war it, in fact the, the subtitle is actually the british army the western front and the emergence of modern warfare 1900 to 19. 18. So it's a, it's a wide-ranging book covering an 18-year period. And it brought together a number of Travers's articles and his ideas into a single volume. I think it came out in about 1987, although um, I can't be entirely sure. It's certainly the late 80s, I think, it was originally published. Yeah, I, 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 I remember reading it. I think it was in about 1987 because I was still fairly new at Sandhurst. And it, was, it arrived and it was a very exciting piece of work. And we all got stuck into it um, uh, is it fair to say that the sheen has worn off of it a bit i think it has and i'm going to caveat this by saying i actually revisited uh certainly part of the, the killing ground prior to recording this podcast i was struck by the fact he's a well-written book um i was reminded of the fact that travis is a very fine writer and he writes in a, a very considering he's dealing with what could be quite esoteric subjects british doctrinal debates and so on Haig's view of a three-phase battle and so on. He actually writes very well, and he, it, it definitely is an easy an easy read given the depth of the subject. But has the sheen worn off? I think it has, and I think there's there's, there's two reasons I, I would say for why the sheen has worn off. The first is I think the historically has actually moved on a little bit. When Travers was writing, there was only really, uh, or actually I say there was only really, there wasn't really any volume that really looked at the Edwardian officer corps. There'd been um, some PhD work done on it in the 1960s and 70s, which had never been published. 
and one would have to go pretty deep into academic journals to find anything on it. So he was really looking at the army in quite an unusual way because he was looking at how it was in peacetime before it entered the war in a depth that no one had done before. But now lots of other authors have revisited mm. those sources, including myself. And what we found is, is often a little different to what Travers has found. But the second problem with Travers or Travers's work is he, and whether this was a mistake, whether um, it was he was bamboozled by what by what he came across, or, or whether he genuinely believed this was accurate, it's the sources I think he used. I th- so I think I, I I know what you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for listeners who don't, this goes back to a character who's been a frequent, he's been a beggar at the feast in this entire podcast series, and that's Basil Little Hart, because Travers' primary source for The Killing Ground were the papers of Basil Little Hart held at King's College London. And those of you who are listening to this three-part series, beginning, of course, with um, our view of the, how the lines led by Donkeysmith was created. Remember, Basil Little Hart, hugely influential in the 20s, 30s and well beyond. And one of the things he did was he had lots and lots of lunches and sometimes dinners with James Edmonds, the official historian <laughs> of the uh, the First World War. And what happened at these dinners is quite interesting because Edmonds, who was a, a strange character in a lot of ways, got a strange sense of humour, extremely intelligent, but quite odd and quite difficult at times, Edmonds would tell Buzz Little Hart all kinds of gossip. He'd tell him all kinds of silly stories over a bottle of wine. And Little Hart would rush home and he'd write all these down. He'd make notes of them. And he kept them in his files. And I think Little Hart probably believed all of these stories. And they're all in his papers. I've seen them. I'm sure you have too, Gary. And what Travis did was he took these papers, he read through them, and he, I, this is dynamite. This is full of anecdote and interest. And that's one of the problems with the book. I've always thought an honest footnote might be uh, Little Heart Boozy Lunch with Edmunds Athenaeum Club, 25th of September, 1935, which is it's a primary source of a sort, but um, not necessarily one to be taken at face value. I mean, I think the point is, even if Edmunds was telling the whole truth, it's 20 plus years after the event. He was uh, not a disinterested witness, I think it's fair to say, particularly when it comes to the likes of Douglas Haig. And um, when you go through Travers's footnotes, uh, quite a lot of his sources are this sort of stuff. I mean, unkindly, you might call it tittle-tattle. Mm. Absolutely it is. And given what we know about Edmonds, who is a peculiar character, he got a strange sense of humour, he wasn't necessarily adverse to spreading rumours and gossip if it amused him or possibly even advanced his career. I think that's those sources need to be taken with a huge pinch of salt. And a lot of the more explosive revelations in Killing Ground trace their origins to Little Hart's paperwork and particularly his interviews with Edmonds. But I, I, one thing I want to emphasise to the listeners is that Killing Ground is still actually a very, very interesting book. And if you're a serious scholar of the First World War, I do recommend... Uh, reading it, even though you might find uh, things to criticise about it, you might find later volumes revise it. I think it was a really interesting volume because it's it's quite a rare thing. In some ways, in some ways, and I don't think Travers wrote it deliberately as a counterpoint to terrain, but it serves as something of a counterpoint to terrain because it, it criticises Haig in a in a in a precise way, and and I think it's done in a respectful 
highly referenced, intelligent, considered way. It's not a, it's not a um, anything like the lions led by donkeys material that we've dismissed before. So it's a very serious book, and it's it was an inter- interesting when it came out in the late eighties. It was interesting that it had this it came in this period when terrain, in some ways, if not exactly, had won the field. It certainly begun to turn this huge oil tanker of First World War historiography around, and then suddenly a, a, a very serious academic and Professor Travers. Uh, it certainly felt fit that bill decides to write on it. Well, I think that Travis somewhere does say that he framed it as a response to Terrain, or at, at least in part. Uh, and of course, uh, John Terrain, I think, came up with a rather intemperate review, as I remember. Uh, <laughs> but if anything, in the end, it served to support Terrain's viewpoint because after a few years, as I said, you know, people started to sort of question some of Travers's approaches, and if anything, it sort of you know pushed people back to, to terrain. And so, despite Travers and I, I agree about the importance of, of, of the book. It's 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 well written, it's well researched, despite what, what we've just said. And Travers is a very good historian. He he sort of dented terrain's armor, but he certainly didn't demolish it. Mm. Okay, well, I think it's worth now. Moving on to the next book we're going to discuss, which came out just a, a little bit after Travers' uh, Killing Ground. And this is Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson's Command on the Western Front, which came out in 1992. Uh, so Robin Pryor and uh, Trevor Wilson are... Uh, Australian historians, in fact, Trevor, Trevor Wilson has, has, has died now, sadly. Uh, in fact, uh, Trevor Wilson's originally from, from New Zealand. And this writing team has produced some really, really interesting and very important books over the last 20, 30 years. Now, what uh, Command of the Western Front is about, it's in effect a military biography of General Sir Henry Rawlinson, which concentrates just on the First World War period. And they use Rawlinson as a sort of vehicle to explore command in the British Army on the Western Front in the First World War. And this is really the only the second book, I guess, after Travers to take a, a serious scholarly look at this subject uh, after terrain. And for my money, this is still one of the single most important, most influential books on the subject that has ever been written. Certainly, when I first read it, in when it came out in 1992, it made a profound impact on me. And actually, one of the things which pushed me in the direction of writing operational military history. Before that, I'd written lots of other stuff about the First World War, but mainly on the sort of social side. But this excited me. It mm. was such a, a terrific, thought-provoking book. Now, I've subsequently, I've, I've come to know Robin Pryor pretty well actually uh you know i've, I've been to his house, house in australia you know we've have you and um and we become good friends and sometimes students are quite surprised to find that robin and i are friends because on hague we actually have very very different views and i'll come on onto that in in, in a few minutes but uh putting that aside i you know I, I have no problem about still you know trumpeting the virtues of this book to this very day one 
odd thing it might be worth mentioning at this stage is I don't think it was as influential as it should have been when it first came out for the simple reason it was published by a fairly obscure press at a horrendous price. I think it's like £40. And this is the early 90s. In 1992. I mean, I didn't pay full price. I managed to get a cheap one somehow. But at the Mm. time, you know, I was, um, you know, relatively newly married, huge mortgage, two small kids. And the idea of lashing out 40 quid on the book, it's a serious point that actually, Mm. if you don't um, disseminate your work in a form that's easily accessible, it simply is not going to reach an audience. I mean, we're not talking about a mass audience, but even the audience of people who are interested in the First World War. Later, of course, it did come out in a paperback and it, it sort of gained the level of influence it should mm-hmm. have come. It, it didn't at the time. Okay, well, I'll quickly say about something he's about what he says about Rawlinson. Um, but then I think the point I want to make is the book is more important in what it says about the British Army as a whole. So mm. Rawlinson, they don't really go much for a biographical approach. And in fact, they're, they're quite explicit about that. So it's it's slightly bloodless in the sense that you don't really learn very much about Rawlinson, who actually was a much more interesting character than I think that they they, they thought he was. He, mm. he was pretty devious. Uh, he was a, a behind-the-scenes operator and all the rest of it. But the key things I want to pull out is that pretty early on, he recognised the importance of artillery. So he was a corps commander at Neuve Chapelle in March 1915. Uh, he paid attention to the artillery preparation. And as a result of that, he actually wrote explicitly using the phrase, possibly the first person to use this, bite and hold. So the idea being that the best way to fight on the Western Front was to mass your artillery, to uh, hammer away at the enemy positions, and then send your infantry forward, not to break through, but rather to capture the enemy positions, dig in, smash up enemy counterattacks, bring the guns forward, do it all over again, gaining a few hundred yards at a time. And he described it in a sense of, you know, biting a chunk out of the enemy's position, then holding on to it and resisting against uh incoming attack uh i mean various other people use the phrase bite and hold but i think am i right in saying i think rawdson's about the first thing it's late I, march 1915 he i think he he coined the phrase bite and hold and i know that's a broad church other people were thinking in similar terms nobody came up with the phrase uh before he so it's and it's such a great phrase still used as shorthand to this day well the next point that prior and wilson make very forcibly is that the success of British operations on the Western Front is really dependent on degree to which they got the artillery right in terms of numbers of guns, amount of ammunition, but also the development of gunnery, which becomes much more scientific than it was at the beginning. Because I'm talking to the official historian of the Royal Artillery here, so, (laughs) uh, you know, sort of uh, preaching to the choir, but that's incredibly important. But they also make the point that there isn't a smooth upward progression in terms of Rawlinson's learning. Mm. So on occasions, he gets the guns right, he gets the artillery right, but then he doesn't seem to learn the lesson and goes off and does something else. And they, they give a, 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 a several examples of this, including um, Ober's Ridge, which mm. is fought in, uh, was it 9th of May 1915? So the next big battle after Neuve Chapelle, in which it, they 
demonstrate that Rawlinson shows very little early. And you see the same again on the Somme and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So what we've got here is a lack of consistency in Rawlingson's apparent ability to learn. The other thing I think is really significant about Command on the Western Front is what it tells us about the development of the British Army rather than simply Rawlinson or, for that matter, his Fourth Army. And one of the most striking passages, which I can still remember the impact it had on me when I read it, was when they're talking about the preparation for the Battle of Amiens, so 8th of August 1918, when they talk about the sheer volume of firepower available to Fourth Army in the, one of the key battles of the Hundred Days, uh, and compare that to what was available on the Somme in 1916, or for that matter, back in 1915. And it's not simply they got lots and lots of stuff, but the army is now extremely expert at actually using it effectively. And so Pryor and Wilson effectively established an orthodoxy that if you don't get the artillery right, then nothing else works. I think it's an worth mentioning that in, in many ways, Pryor and Wilson built on an earlier volume with regards to the artillery, and that was Shelford Bidwell and Dominic Graham's influential book, Firepower, which was published in the early 80s. Uh, and he's actually about British artillery in the First and Second World War. Of course, Shelford Bidwell, uh, a gunner himself, a significant gunner of the 1980s, uh, who had made this point. But of course, their book... Uh, it is an excellent book, incidentally, for those interested in, in the importance of firepower, but only covers the First World War in, a, in a, a, a really about the first quarter, first third of the book, mainly actually about the Second World War. But I, again, a, a point of influence, I think Pryor and Wilson probably had a lot more influence on First World War scholarship than Bidwell and Graham. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Of course, this doesn't come, their, their, their expertise doesn't spring out of nowhere, and they are very well read in original sources uh which are going back to war diaries and, and such like so they're not all just you know little, little heart lunches with, with with Edmunds and of course solidly founded on the official history and previous uh, historians uh work okay so I think it's an incredibly important book and for many people Batman and Robin as they became known among the first world war fraternity established an orthodoxy and a bit like terrain, you know, various people have chipped away at that, including in, in some ways I have. But they still re this still remains as such an incredibly important book. And the idea about getting if you get the artillery right, then pretty well everything else follows. Uh, I think is it's still yeah, not unchallenged. Uh, some people would actually stress rather more the importance of infantry but even then they deal with the importance of infantry firepower i mean stressing the the number of lewis guns available to battalions uh, mm -hmm. in 1918 mm -hmm. for example as opposed to 1916 mm. but no book is perfect and there are a few criticisms uh there's 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 some fairly minor ones such as they seem to have a bit of a blind spot about cavalry uh famously the word cavalry doesn't even appear in the index of uh, Command Western Front. And quite a body of research in recent years has said that cavalry, as in horse cavalry, is more significant on the Western Front than most people would recognise. And I think that point, I think, is very well made. It's also oddly got a bit of a blind spot 
about how staff work works. So Archie Montgomery, Chief of Staff of Fourth Army for much of this period, well, he certainly mentioned in the book, but you don't get much of a sense that Rawlinson was in a, a, a very strong professional partnership with Montgomery, which he certainly was. And so anybody going back and, you know, rewriting this book, I think actually would put far more of Montgomery in than appears uh, in Command on the Western Front. And the the big thing, which I must say, you know, fine book as it is, I I just do disagree with Robin Pryor, particularly on, on, on this, is I think that they downplay the role of Haig. There is a, a distinct um, anti-Haig bias and this will cover no news to anybody who's read anything of my work or anything of Robin's work. We've actually debated about this in public. We've argued about it over pints in pubs. Um, and I respect his viewpoint, but actually it's not one that I share. And so the um, the downplaying was the denigration of the role of Haig uh, in command on the Western Front. I think that has not worn terribly well. Because mm. uh, I've actually mm. done some some research of my own in 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 in, in this field and i think haig's a a more uh, a more solid more important figure than uh than prior and wilson uh would, would 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 allow but for all that it's such an incredibly important book and it's still top of any reading list you know top five books i would give to people what's about the british army in the western front of the first world war Prior and Wilson command the Western Front, definitely there. Mm. Well, okay. Well, mm. I, I read it when it first came out. You are a, uh, a Johnny come lately, relatively <laughs> speaking, to the field of the First World War. So, what was his reputation like when mm. you entered the field? So, when I entered the field in the the, the late noughties, really, uh, Prior and Wilson and Tim Travers were were usually mentioned in the same breath. And the the in fact, I think one of the interesting things here is if you read the two books side by side or, or one after the other, you can see that though they're both what we might call post-revisionists, as in or post-terrain might be a better phrase, in that they're they're willing to criticize British command and so on, they take slightly subtly different viewpoints. So Travers and uh, perhaps I should establish this when I was talking about Travers a little earlier. One of his central theses is that, that the British army prior to the war was locked in a very particular mindset. It was dominated by a cult of rank, and it was run by what Travis calls the Hidden Army, which is an informal network of friends, allies, uh, and so on. Our friend and colleague Stephen Badsey once said that the British Army operates prior to the First World War a little bit like a political party, broadly united, but with lots of little factions and cliques who form around important individuals and so on. Well, Travis takes that a step further and he says that the, the army is dominated in a way by nepotism and by backscratching and that that limits real intellectual thought in the army. And then when the war begins, the army has been taught in a certain way. He's very keen on the idea that, that Douglas Haig is obsessed with a three-phase battle, for example, and that the army struggles to learn because it's locked into this pre-war mindset. It cannot escape. Whereas Pryor and Wilson, I think, as you've already made a really good point, make the point that actually people do learn. Uh, Rawlinson learns, but his learning is very uneven. And it's not, I think actually Pryor and Wilson say this possibly in the introduction of the conclusion. They were surprised by the nature of learning and how uneven it is that some lessons are forgotten or aren't properly interpreted and so on. And it's interesting that, that Pryor and Wilson see Rawlinson as, in some cases, failing to learn a lesson. Whereas Travis sees Rawlinson more as Douglas Haig's pet, 
who knows what he should be doing, but he's not doing it because he's got to stay on Douglas Haig's right side. And so they're, they're both coming at, at Rawlinson with, with a slightly critical air, but different views. And when I started, I was told you need to read both of these uh, and, and consider the, the evidence in them, which, of course, any good historian does. So I remember when I was starting out, the, I'm pretty sure, I, 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 for listeners at, at home who want to know how sad my record keeping was from this period, I, every book I read during my, my PhD, every article I read, I created a handwritten database with them in the order which I read them and the day I finished them. And I, I'm not going to check, but I'm 99% sure I read, I think Travers might have even been the first book I read, and I think Prime Wilson might have been the second or third I read. So they, they, And this was what was directed, I was directed in this way, so they were hugely influential. I think, I think perhaps Travers is less influential now, although caveat to that, I was recently at a conference in the USA where Travers was still being mentioned as the starting point for studying the British Army in the First World War. But I would argue that in Britain, I think Pryor and Wilson are more the, the, the starting point now. Um, but one thing I want to ask you, Gary, is do you think that these two books represent a, a new strand of thought? We've looked at Lions Led by Donkeys. We've looked at John Terrain's revisionism. Could we call these post-revisionists or post-Terrainians or, or another title? They are new in the sense that they are scholarly, properly researched, and written by reputable academics. Travers, in a sense, I think is a bit of a throwback, actually, because for, for good reasons you've already explained, he's latching on to some of the criticisms of Little Heart and so on in the 1930s, whereas Priorabus, I think, is something new and different. Now, as I've made clear, I don't think they get everything right. But actually, the, the sheer ex intellectual excitement of the way they treated command, the way they looked at the development of the army, the way they looked at the development, uneven as it was, of a particular commander, Henry Rawlinson, I found very refreshing and different. So, yes, I'm not surprised that these two books continue to be paired, in a sense, you know, but I think Pryor and Wilson is more original, perhaps a bit unfair saying that, but certainly I think did start something rather different from what had been there before. Whereas I think that Travers is a bit of a throwback to an earlier age. Mm, mm. I, think, I think that's a really interesting summary for them, but do we recommend that listeners check both these volumes out? Oh, ab ab absolutely. If you're serious about reading about the First World War, you need to read both of these books. But also, you need to then go on to look at more recent scholarship, which we will discuss in the second part of the podcast. So we'll take a brief break and see you in a few minutes. So welcome back, everybody, to Military History Plus, where we're discussing books that came out really in the 80s, 90s, noughties, and a little bit beyond that followed on from the work of John Terrain. And moving on to the next volume that we're going to be discussing, it's somebody who's actually already been featured on this podcast, or his work's been featured on this podcast, and that's actually the work of Paddy Griffith, Gary. Yeah, Paddy, um, remarkable man, friend and colleague of mine from... Sandhurst days, uh, wildly eccentric, but one of the genuinely most original and brilliant historians I've ever come across. 
And as we've established previously, when we've been discussing Paddy Griffith, when we looked at his influential book, Battle Tactics, the American Civil War, he described himself as a slash and burn historian who would emerge behind enemy lines, produce one volume and then exit, having disrupted the normal order of things. And although he, he wrote a little bit more about the First World War than he actually is about the American Civil War, I think his Battle Tactics of the Western Front actually fits that mould. And that's the next book to, to look at, which is... Um, it is just simply called Battle Tactics, the Western Front, 1916 to 1918, and it was published in 1994. I had a, I did have an input into this because uh, when I first went to Sandhurst, he very kindly took me on, under his wing and you know, mentored me through uh, the first few years. And I think me endlessly banging on about the First World War did have a bit of an impact on, on him. So, yeah. I, I, I bear a, a share of the blame or, 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 or credit for pushing him on that path. Although, of course, you know, being Paddy, once he got on that path, he went off in his own direction. <laughs> that, that's very true. And he actually told me uh, a long time after this that his experience of writing Battle Tactics, the American Civil War, and finding how little was actually written about tactics, genuine tactics, how a battle functioned, how a unit acted in combat, how little had been written about the war in the 1860s, was at least partially an inspiration for war, uh, doing the same for the First World War. Uh, you probably played a role in that as well, banging on about it. And this led to this book, which uh, I know from, because I assigned it to my students read, I know it can actually divide a little bit of opinion, but I think that this is actually a, a very, very influential book. And in some ways, it's the only one of its kind, because it sets, to, sets out to look at the British Army, not at a command level, or an operational level, but down at a tactical level. So it drills down to company size actions or even platoon size actions and tries to work out it. what seems like an obvious question, but it's one that's surprisingly difficult to find books discussing. And that's the basics of how does a platoon go from a British trench to a German trench without suffering enormous casualties? And his way of, and uh, how does it integrate all of its different parts? Because, of course, by 1917, you have a platoon that's got a light machine gun section, a grenade section, a rifle grenade section, a, a bayonet and rifle section. How do all these parts work together? And I think what Paddy does with this really well is show that two things, really. One, tactics are complicated, actually quite difficult to implement. And secondly, they're actually massively understudied within the, the wider context of the First World War. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. And I sort of conflate this book with Command of the Western Front by Pryor and Wilson in my mind. In fact, in fact I think it came out two years later. Uh, but these two books, looking at the higher command level and the tactical level, really, again, was hugely influential on, on, on me and the way that I, I viewed the First World War and in, in, indeed military history. And we were, I think we already covered this to some extent when we talked about Paddy's writings on the American Civil War, but he's a very, it's very rare to find a true tactical historian, but mm. Paddy was one. And for me, reading that book was a complete eye-opener. But uh, what I, I've, I've actually given this, assigned this book to students in the past as well, and yeah, it has been a bit of a mixed reaction. I mean, so what 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 do your students not like about it, or some of them anyway? 
I think some students just simply aren't drawn that closely to tactics. And it can get, um, it really does get into the shell holes and amongst the weeds, the Western Front, on how basic things work and how things function. How does a platoon advance? How does a machine gun barrage function? And for some some people, that's uh, that's very narrow. That's very, very deep. Um some of the more legitimate criticisms that have come out is Paddy sometimes gets distracted by unusual individuals um, and places a little bit too much weight on them, or sometimes he's, he's, there's a little bit there's a little bit of a focus on formations that might not be considered representative of the BF as a whole. So elite formations, things like 9th Scottish, 15th Scottish, 29th, uh, 29th regular, these type of divisions who are a little bit special, a little bit unusual within the BF, and there's a bit of a focus on their actions to exclusion of the wider the wider BF. But also students are reacting very positively. And I'd say the number one comment I've had from students is that they've never read a book quite like this. I think that's very true. Even now, if you pick up a high-quality book about the First World look the ones you're just discussing, Travers and Pryor and Wilson, it's always, or not always, it's often at a higher level, it's at a command level. Perhaps it gets no lower than division, really. You might read that a battalion captured this point or a company of this battalion did this. But how does it actually do it? Well, Paddy's is, is the only serious book, it, to my knowledge, that really, really gets into this. And if you consider it came out in 1994 as well, uh, it's, in my opinion, it's not been superseded as a book about tactics on the Western Front. I don't think there was anything quite like it before. I know there's anything been quite like it since. Well, the closest thing in some ways actually is John Keegan's Face of Battle, which mm. we discussed earlier, because there is a section on the Somme. And when I when I talk to students about historiography, in fact, as I was doing yesterday, I tell them that they need to study the author as well as the book to know about influences and all the rest of it. <clears throat> and of course, uh, John Keegan and Paddy Griffith were colleagues at Sandhurst and the two of them didn't get on terribly well I mean personality really I think <clears throat> excuse me partly it's it's, it's chalk, chalk and cheese so it's interesting that these two people who were personally not very close actually both zoom in on the the minutiae of battle although Keegan isn't really looking at tactics in the same way as Paddy did but uh, it's the only thing I can really think about that does that same sort of soldier's eye view of the First mm. World War at least in, Keegan writes solely about the Somme mm, mm. Um, that's, a, that's a very good point and I think looking at the literature now and this includes some of my work there's, there's such a debt owed to, to Paddy's in many ways, groundbreaking work on this because so many books now uh, that they're, they're are perhaps talking about a division. There's been a number of good divisional histories in the last few years about the British and the Western Front. It just refer back to Paddy Griffith's uh, book about this is how the tactics worked. And so it, it's, it, I think it was innovative, it's original. And the fact that it, it's been published in the 1990s, so um, 70 years after the, the end of the First World War, uh, sorry, 80 years even after the end of the First World War, and it's the first really detailed book on tactics, is is extremely interesting. And it, it was also, just on a personal level, it was a big influence on me. Uh, Battle Tactics of the American Civil War was what really drew me to Paddy's work. Battle Tactics of the Western Front uh, followed up on, on that. And uh, you I still I agree with you completely, Gary. Tactics as a as a subject is still hugely understudied in, in military history in general. This struck me the other book, which takes a similar approach to this, of course, is Martin Middlebrook's First Day on the Somme, which mm. we've already discussed in a in a previous episode in the first series, but we may well return to 
later on uh, as a, a podcast in its own right. So mm. Paddy, I think, cornered the market for tactical studies. And you're right. I mean, I can't think of anything that, that has superseded it. Though, of course, there have been a lot of detailed studies of individual uh, things mm. in terms of tactics. I think, for example, of um, Al Palazzo's book, Seeking Victory on the Western Front, which looks at mm. chemical warfare. Uh, but no one has I can think of as trying to do the whole thing in the way in, in the way that that that, that Paddy did. No, no, I, I don't think there's been anything quite that the same way. There's been um, books that looks at elements of of this, so cavalry tactics, armored tactics, for example. And there's nothing quite like Paddy for for an overall uh, overall view. And one thing I'd say just to draw these books we keep looking at together is is the the quality of these books. The Travers, Pryor and Wilson, Paddy Griffith, three three very high quality books that are approaching the First World War from slightly different angles each time, uh, that are adding to it to a richness in the literature in the late eighties and, and early nineties, uh, which is extremely extremely rewarding to read. But it, it's also worth remembering at this stage that the First World War literature scene, such as it is, such as it was, is by no means universally brilliant. And there's actually some really shockingly poor books also being published around this time, some of which are, are pains me to say, actually sold quite well. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of John Laffin's uh, Butchers and Bunglers of the Western Front, which I think came out in the late 1980s, though I stand to be correct. 1988. 1988. So around about the same time Tim Travers is publishing his very thoughtful work, you've also got John Laffin publishing a not very thoughtful work, but one that rather sadly actually sells quite well. Um, have you have you read this one? Have you made it from cover to cover, Gary? I, well, I yeah, I think I probably have. Uh, my my copy, I suspect, got hurled across the room. <laughs> it actually, <laughs> actually, no, I I have read it. It's Laffin's British. Butchers and Bungles of the First World War is such a brilliant book in the sense it encapsulates everything about the lines led by Donkey's myth, about uh, you know, someone who clearly, if he's read anything by recent historians, hasn't understood it or not prepared to listen to it. It's it, in many ways it, it it sums up an entire school of thought about the First World War. <laughs> well, perhaps uh, in some future episode, we might look at books we don't like from the First World War, or we might call it difficult books or challenging books. Uh, I think uh, John Laffin's uh, might be in that. And just as a, a little anecdote, I once, I, years ago, we assigned, uh, you may not remember this, Gary, I remember it quite vividly, we actually assigned John Lappin's Butchers and Bunglers as a book review for our students. And uh, I remember their, their reaction, well, this was a, a First World War MA, and um, their reaction was one of uh, incredulous, incredulous horror is about the only way I can describe it. So. <laughs> as, as good but, as that, but, eh? <laughs> as good as that. But, but it is important to remember that these books are still being published um, during the 80s, 90s, and indeed beyond. So uh, I don't want listeners to think that the, the literature scene had swung completely in favour of very considered works in the First World War. Yeah, yeah. But but from a, a book that we, we don't think much of to a, a book that is also very influential and a very high-quality book, uh, your next choice, Gary, is uh, Kitchener's Army by Peter Simpkins. So could you tell well, us that, a little bit about that? That's right. Well, without turning this into uh, uh, Gary's memoirs, um, <laughs> Peter Simpkins, who was the senior historian at the Imperial War Museum, huge influence on my career. I met him, I think it must have been 20 years old, something like that, as an undergraduate. And he gave me 
very, very good uh, steer towards my undergraduate dissertation. Um, we we became friends. We've been now friends for, gosh, however many years, 40-odd years. And Pete I, is actually one of, I think, most significant historians of the First World War Britain has produced in the second half of the 20th century, but not nearly as well known as he should have been. And I think that's largely because he's was so busy in his day job as a as as a as a, a museum um, worker historian that actually he didn't get to write very much during his career. Uh, but his book Kitchener's Army, which came out in in 1988, is an absolutely superb book. Now, in contrast to what we've been talking about, it's very much a political and social history of the raising of the new armies in 1914. 15, uh, based on at least a decade's worth of work, I suspect, more than that. And it's absolute tour de force. It's, it's in two parts. The first part is looking at the political, economic, uh, and, um, you know, sort of uh, strategic implications of the raising of Kitchener's army. So going into, into the detail about disputes within cabinet and, you know, financing and such like. And the second part is much more about the experience of the men who joined up in 1914-15, looking at things like adjusting to life in the army, the problem of billeting. So you you, you recruit hundreds of thousands of men. Where where do they live? All that mm. sort of thing. And it's impeccably researched. And once again, a book which has not been, no one's come anywhere near writing anything like this uh, since mm. it came out in 1988. I think probably for the very good reason that well, no book is definitive, but this is about the next best thing uh, to a definitive study. Um, now, lots of people have actually sort of used this book as a launching pad to do case studies of Kitchener's mm -hmm. Army, but as a book, it's it survives its reputation intact, and I suspect will be the go-to book on Kitchener's Army for decades to come. I can't imagine anybody. Uh, trying to replace it let alone succeeding in in, in replacing it mm -hmm. um now pete uh in spite of what i what i've said actually has gone on in retirement to be quite a prolific author of first world war material turning to operational stuff rather than social stuff um mainly in the form of articles but uh, actually, it, it was my suggestion, actually. He pulled together a series of his most important articles in a book called From the Somme to Victory, The British Army's Experience on the Western Front, 1916 to 1918, which came out about um, about 10 years ago. And it looks at, for example, his beloved 18th Eastern Division on the Somme, uh, uh, known as Simo's own to, uh, to, 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 to Pete's, uh, Pete's friends. Um, he looks at British divisions at Villa Bretonneau in 1918. He looks at the 12th Eastern Division in 100 days. So Pete is someone who I really admire his breadth of vision as a historian because he can do cabinet level political history. He can do social history. He's also an excellent uh, analyst uh, at the operational and tactical level. So anybody who doesn't know uh, Peter Simpkins' books, Wow, if you're interested in the First World War, you have a treat in store. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And I think one thing he does really, really well in Kitchener's Army is, is just establish uh, the, the, the just the sheer constraints of Britain raising it, its first mass army in its history and how little things that we don't really think about, as you say, where do you put all these men? 
What do you clothe them with? What do you give them to train with? Uh, what do they do? And when the initial rush of enthusiasm that they have, the excitement they think they're going to go on an adventure, when it translates into just endless guard duty on a waterlogged camp somewhere in the southwest of Great Britain, how does that play out? How do they feel about this? And it's it's a book I, I would actually um, compare in some ways to Martin Middlebrook's First Day of the Somme because it humanises the yeah. Army of the First World War, brilliantly, I think. And we've talked a lot about books that are looking at how the army fights and how the army actually conducts itself in the field of battle. But what um, Peter's book does brilliantly is, is just to, well, what kind of man was in this army? And what do they think? And, and how do they act? And also, to an extent, how did they fight? How did these civilians in uniform go on to be an army in, in what was then the bloodiest war in human history? And, and that's a story that we, we forget it, it, we, we all know there was this mass volunteer army. We all know they suffered terribly. But what were their experiences? And, and this was a terrific book. Not the, the first book to try and do this, um, but the first modern book to do it in a really scholarly, but also extremely readable way, I think. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, again, it was a book that was very expensive when it first came out. So I think that limited its its reach, but it's since been published in fairly inexpensive paperback form and uh yeah, yeah okay yeah. i i think i've probably chosen eight of my top five books so far but um <laughs> but peter simpkins kitchener's army uh definitely there it's it, it, it it's a wonderful book and mm. anybody with an interest in the first world war will get so much from it and mm. just emphasize the point for, for listeners that these books we're recommending not john laffin's butchers and bunglers to the western front are uh, the books we've recommended you can read, and they all, as one, that none of these volumes necessarily is, is stand out. They, they actually complement each other, whether it's how the army was commanded, Travers and Pride Wilson, how the army actually fights on the ground, Paddy Griffith, how the army thinks and how it's recruited, how it's trained, uh, Peter Simpkins' work. And, and it was a really rich time, I think, for First World War literature as well. But talking about riches, Gary, um, and talking about rich intellectual activities, we're, we're moving on to... Uh, the fifth of our six books we're going to be looking at, and uh, full disclosure to the listeners, this is one that Gary himself wrote, and that's Forgotten <laughs> Victory, which uh, I believe came out in two thousand. Gary, two thousand one. I, I should actually say to, to I should say to our listeners, we did debate whether we could talk about our own books, and we. <laughs> thought, it's our podcast; we can do what we like, but uh, <laughs> rather than. Talk about how splendid this book is. Uh, actually, I, I think genuinely by saying something about the circumstances in which I came to write it and the reaction, it says something about the historiography of, of the First World War and the way that people still react to it. Mm. So take us back. Take us back more than 20 years, Gary. What prompted you, what motivated you to sit down and write Forgotten Victory? Right. Well, there was this this um, youngish guy, um, different colour hair, thinner, more hair certainly. Uh, I, I I first started thinking about the book, which became Forgotten Victory, when I was thirty nine, and I was just about to move on from Sandhurst, where I was a, a, a lecturer, to the Joint Services Command Staff College at. Shrivenham, uh, part of the King's College, London Empire. And I was looking for something to, on a very selfish personal level, to sort of 
consolidate where I was in my career term. So I, I got a significant prom promotion by going to the staff college uh, and I wanted to have a book to accompany that. Now, by this stage, I'd already written quite a lot, um, but I hadn't written anything for a high street publisher. So very, very long story short, I got an agent, pitched a book, sold it to a headline, bought a headline, and produced a book, which in the end, ended up being called Forgotten Victory, The First World War, Myths and Realities. Now, anybody who read the book at the time would have seen it for what it was. It was a synthesis, very largely, of the state of play of the historiography of the First World War, together with a bit of original research from, from me. So, you know, well, you, you, you've, you've read the book. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty well standard for what people were saying in academic circles at the time. You know, maybe people wouldn't, wouldn't agree with all my interpretations, but there was nothing really new or startling in it. However, comma, those people who didn't know anything about the First World War, or rather thought they did, which was all Blackadder and Lions Head by Donkeys, were completely horrified by this mm. book which put forward, you know, I hope a reasoned argument about the development of the British army and the fact Douglas Haig shouldn't be treated as a complete idiot and there was a victory that was won and the war actually uh, was one that was worth fighting for the British and all, all the rest of it. And I got a lot of reviews, a lot of reaction. Most of it, I should say, was overwhelmingly positive. And I got some superb reviews from people like Professor Sir Michael Howard, you know, the great the greatest british military historian of the 20th century which you know i blowing my own trumpet but i was extremely pleased by that i got some really dreadful reviews as well and the one that <laughs> sticks in my mind was in the independent in which i was described as a uh, if i get it right uh, a simple-minded right-wing ideologist <laughs> uh, oh, and, and my book apparently was an insult to the memory of the men who served the First World War. Well, yeah, I, I must say I was pretty cross at the time when I saw that. Yeah. And this was pre-Twitter, so there was no immediate comeback. I did get a, a letter eventually published uh, in the paper a week or so later. Um, mm. But looking back on it, it's a fascinating reaction because mm. the reaction of this reviewer is pure fury to mm. someone daring to suggest there was anything at all that could be said about the British Army in the First World War, and specifically Douglas Haig. And actually, mm. reading back on it, I was actually rather more blowing hot, blowing rather hot and cold about Haig at the time. I had not yet actually come to my position now, which I think Haig was, did a rather, rather a good job. I, I was actually much more ambivalent then. So what they would have said had I put in my, my uh, uh, 2023 version uh, view, views of Haig in that book, it's uh, uh, too horrifying to, to, to contemplate. Mm. So, the point I want to make is, I mean, the merits of my book, or otherwise aside, at the turn of the century, at the millennium, there was still this huge emotional reaction by some people to a book about the First World War, which fairly calmly, building on recent scholarship, um, coming really with a rather consensus, consensus view of the British Army at that stage, at least among, among historians, were driven to such you know, sheer fury and anger, um, mm, mm. which I must say did take me slightly by surprise, 
Um, but it, what it did mean that 20 years later, or 14 years later, when the centenary of the First World War kicked off, I was not surprised by how much raw emotion and anger there still was out there, uh, mm -hmm. at, at least in Britain, about the First World War. Uh, absolutely. Uh, just on, on anger about the First World War, I remember when, just as an anecdote, to back you up, this would have been, I guess, it's pre-centenary, so maybe about 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, I was at a, an event and I was being checked in at the reception and the person who was hosting me, and this was a, a British Army event, incidentally, the person who was hosting me, I was just talking to, and he said, what are you working on at the moment? And I said, I'm working on learning in the British Army and, and tactical learning. And the receptionist, uh, a man, a Scottish man, in fact, who hadn't been involved in this conversation at all, just suddenly chimed up and very angrily and in a thick Scottish brogue said, I'll tell you what the British Army learned. It taught how to, it taught people how to walk very slowly into machine guns. 60,000 dead on the first day of the Somme. That's what the British Army learned. And it was like, uh, hello, um, do I know you? Uh, lovely to meet you. Um, I, that was that was then. That was 2012. I, I stuck in my head. Yeah. So I can imagine the, the vitriol that, that a book, a mainstream book, uh, such as Forgotten Victory would would face. Yeah, I mean, of course, you can't be objective about your own work. But let, 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 me, let, me, let, let, me, let me try. It was an attempt to put out to a, to a mass audience the word you've just used, the mainstream view among scholars of the British Army, plus or minus, say not everybody would agree everything I said, but you know, on, on the whole, uh, you know, it got it got decent reviews from 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 nearly everybody who knew something about the subject, uh, from those who knew nothing about the subject or rather thought they knew, but in fact they just knew the myths. It just caused them to to blow their tops. It's you know, even, even now I, I find that quite remarkable. Mm, mm. Now, let me ask you another question. So, when you were writing Forgotten Victory and you were you were putting this together, what what books were influencing you? Because this whole sub series in the podcast has been about books. What books did yeah. you have in mind? Were you trying to revise particular books, or were the particular books you were building on? Or uh, yes, yes, I was. I mean, actually, in terms of establishing a a basic narrative, I relied on Cyril Fall's First World War. Mm -hmm. 1960. Uh, Edmund's short history of the First World War, you don't necessarily trust his judgments, but he actually got the events more or less in the right order, which was came out in 1951. But I was also building on work of people like like, like Ian Beckett, uh, Pryor and Wilson. I uh, didn't mention earlier, but Pryor and Wilson published two books uh, together after the Command of the Western Front, one on the Somme, uh, uh, one, one on Passchendaele. And I, I, I had some disagreements with both of those, and so I sort of gently correct corrected them. Um, Travers was in the mix. Um, Peter Simpkins actually wrote a a very good general history of, I think it's basically the the Western Front in in a, in a big format coffee table book, mm -hmm. uh, and that was incredibly helpful. Not least because Pete put a lot of his wisdom about battle fighting and so on in there so what I, what I tried to do was was draw upon the most recent scholarship the most recent scholarship of the time obviously uh but mixing in stuff like Edmonds and and Fort Falls as well so it, again looking back on on it I would have done it probably a bit differently were, were I writing it today but at the time I thought mm. it was I thought not not a, a bad summary of the of the state of scholarship at the mm, time, mm. yeah, or, or be you know that you know 
not everybody thinks absolutely alike about 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 everything but yeah um so i i try to draw on a, a range of up-to-date work but also reach reach back in into uh into the previous decades as well mm-hmm. uh, and it was of course and we, this is a little bit of blowing trumpets it was successful as well um and it, i know it was uh, i know as well that we've touched on this several times we've touched on it this episode we've touched on it when we we're looking at lines led by donkeys um it's no use producing ideas if nobody reads them <laughs> you know one of the, the powers of the lines led by donkeys period was that lloyd george and little heart sold so many books they were so widely read so this was in some ways quite an unusual volume in that it was so it was revisionist it was it was post-terrain it uh, and yet it was it was influential and i know for example it was used on um it may still be used for as far as i know it, it, it was used as a text at school and uh, at college level in the uk as well which i think is testament to both its success in what you, you try to do and and also its lasting influence well well, well thanks um, um I, th- I think i even put in the forward that one of the triggers for this is that i've been sitting by this stage for about 15 years 20 years in scholarly seminars at king's college london at sandhurst and we've been complaining about you know we can't get our ideas out there to to a broader audience so well okay i'll have a go and see if i can do it and so Mm. that's what it now other people have written books in pretty much the same vein Uh, gordon corrigan's book Mud, Blood and Poppycock came out uh, about a year later. And Gordon, who I know well, told me he deliberately didn't read my book while he Mm. was writing his. So he wouldn't be influenced it uh, by. And various other people like Nick Lloyd, for example, have come out with, you know, essentially similar ideas of presenting modern scholarship uh, to a wider, wider audience. Uh, But that Mm. book worked well at the time. I updated it several times during the centenary period, uh, although I d- actually didn't change the main text, well, hardly mm. at all, because I thought actually I could constantly update it, but I'd rather keep as it was as, as a 2001 text. But I've written subsequent, you know, afterwards and stuff like that, bringing it, bringing it up, up, up to date. Um, so that's that's where where we are today with it. And it's a book which you know has still still in print, has been for for, for, for twenty odd years. Uh, mm. And it remains, you know, it's not my best book, I don't think, but I suspect mm. if I'm remembered for anything, um, it's going to be that. Oh, that, and I guess yeah. Hague, Hague, mm. the Hague Diaries, but that's some that's mm. ra- rather different. But as as an original book written by me, I suspect that that's the one that you know, if I'm remembered at all, that I'll be remembered for that. Oh, fantastic! Speaking well, of okay. speaking of books written by hosts of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer, you've actually been very prolific in producing a series of edited volumes mm. um, over the last what? When the first come out come out in twenty twenty thirteen. So, crikey, a decade uh, of yeah. these volumes now. So, yeah. time flies. Uh, yeah. And what what you've done is basically take a year at a time. So, you've so far you've done a book on nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen, nineteen sixteen, nineteen seventeen. Which begs the question, 
Is there one on yeah. Nineteen coming up? There, there, there will be, and in fact, um, I have been. It, I'm suffering from fine, what you might call a final album syndrome. So that the super group is that I've put together over the years. It's about to record its final album, and I'm feeling the pressure. I want to make sure the 1918 volumes are real, a real, uh, a greatest hits to, to go out on. But that that is forthcoming. And, and just as a little anecdote about that, way back when I started this series in in 2013. Um, I published with Hellion, so they're a small specialist publisher, but they do a, a fantastic job on these books. I, I couldn't really, I really can't thank them enough. They've been the biggest champion of these books, and, and they're the ones who ensure they're so beautifully produced. Originally, the proposal was to try and produce a book that would, would tie in with each year of the centenary. Well, we, we managed that with the first two. So the 1914 book came out in 2013 the 1915 book in 2015, and then the gaps have just got bigger. So the 1916 book wasn't until 2018, and the 1917 book wasn't until 2022. So <laughs> I, I promise, though, the 1918 book won't be delayed that much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we'll start to wrap up now, but let's just have a, 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 a talk about, about these books. So it strikes me what you're trying to do is bring together a range of scholarship focused mainly on the Western Front. I think you do stretch outside that on occasions. It, it's it's purely Western Front, oh, in please. fact. Um, th there is actually a spin-off volume that was edited by the, the very fine Australian uh, historian Reese Crawley and um, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Michael Cicero. It's just called Gallipoli. Uh, but oh, it, is, it, is, it is a Western Front series. And as you've, you've mentioned, the, the concept behind it was to try and draw together lots of different scholars to present different views. And there was two reasons for this. One, um, one of my favourite books that does this is actually John Keegan's Churchill's Generals, where an edited book, uh, which you contributed to yourself, Gary, in fact. One of the first um, things I ever had published. I love that book. I still love that book. I think it's a terrific little volume. Um, refer to it frequently. And I wanted to do something similar for um, initially commanders of the BF in 1914 uh, and bring together scholars. Uh, and, and do that. And it worked incredibly well. In, in fact, Stemming the Tide, which is the 1914 book, was runner-up for the Templar Medal, came runner-up to our mutual friend and, and colleague, John Buckley's Monty's Men. So you know, it's a love-in on this military history podcast, but that, so it was. Uh, and then the, the follow-up volumes, um, rather than writing command biographies, because there'd be a lot of repetition, instead it was going to be chapters about individual aspects of the British Army on the Western Front in that year. And, and the idea was always to try and bring together a lot of different scholars, because the First World War scholarly community is is really rich, and there are there are a lot of different people working on different aspects. And there's two things I'd say. that First of all, editing these books is far more work than anybody who's listening can possibly imagine. You, you know, you might think you just get a lovely finished chapter, uh, it lands on your desk, and that's it. You slot it into a book. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not like that. There's lots, <laughs> lots, and lots and lots of work to do. <laughs> I share your pain. I've been there. I'm about to go there again. You'd think at my age, I'd know better. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a huge effort. But one thing I would say, and and I get asked this occasionally by people who've read the books, they say, "Do I give a brief about?" what the author is, a, a steer on the, the line the author is to take. And I have never done this. Although I, I lay out a brief about word limit, um, the theme of the book, the overall theme, you know, what are the people are writing about to avoid repetition. I always want people to write the same, their own thoughts. And occasionally that actually leads to ch chapters that disagree with each other within the same volume. And I think that's that's all for the, the good. It's, it's 
adds to a rich debate and it adds something to it. And uh, uh, it's I think that's one of the strengths of the series. Well, I I'm a great fan of the series. I you know, full disclosure, I wrote a chapter in the in the first one on Haig, and I wrote the introduction or forward, whatever it's called, in 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 a later one. One of the things I really like about it is you actually have a a combination of old lags like me, and um, the jargon is ECRs, early career researchers. Now these can literally be young people um, making their way in, in in the scholarly world, or it can be um, people of a slightly older vintage who nonetheless have come to scholarship usually through doing the the MAs that we have run over the years who might be in their 40s 50s 60s or even older mm. who actually are producing some absolutely cracking research and that I think blend of uh, established scholars and and new new researchers uh, makes a, 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 a real winning formula and of course also you actually give um, an outlet for people who possibly might have been too diffident to get into print otherwise. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. some of our students in the past who produce some really, really good material, but actually they sort of suffer even more than we do from imposter syndrome. And so getting this stuff into print, I think, is, has been a real service. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would say that the reviews of the series, um, so it's fascinating, actually. Initially, when the reviews were coming out, they, I got really, really mixed reviews, uh, surprisingly mixed reviews for the 1914 volume, I, even though it won a, or was runner-up for a national I, prize. What, what, uh, what didn't people like about it? I, I can't see why people would be criti- critical. Th- there was there was uh, some criticism about um, it wasn't revisionist enough, in fact, uh, I remember, and uh, that more could have been said. And I remember one review... Uh, I don't want to turn this podcast into a grousing about reviews, uh, but oh, one, review, one review by a fairly fairly prominent at the time, although he's not in the, the field really anymore, uh, reviewer, was really critical and said that this book isn't, uh, isn't original and it's, um, you know, it's just, it's re- it, it repeats a lot of well-known information. And I can tell you that it was not. I worked really hard to make sure we got biographies on people who've never had biographies before and this sort of thing. And I thought, I don't think you actually know anything about the campaign we're writing about. Um, you, you, you can tell me offline who it was. <laughs> Yeah, and if listeners, if you're interested, buy me a drink and I'll tell you. Um, but then the, the later volumes have been have been really well received, and in fact, the, the it's interesting to see which which have been influential, and the two that have, have picked up the biggest responses have actually been the 1915 and the 1917 volume, and perhaps that's because in terms of nuts and bolts fighting in those years, especially 1915 or the Western Front, there's there's not that much work being done on it, but. Um, just to go back to your point about the the author composition, this is something I'm, I'm genuinely proud of. It was always an intention to try and bring in some different people's different ideas, different voices, uh, and it's just worked brilliantly well. And I had an email, in fact, it's someone who's going to be in the 1918 volume. He emailed me, uh, this, I'd say it's last year, and said, I'd really like to be in this volume. Um, I'm, a, I'm a PhD student, and I've read your work, and I know you always give a chance for younger scholars and apart from that made me feel ancient because <laughs> I thought I'm a younger scholar um at the same time I took that <laughs> as a huge compliment and that if I can I should, you know, give give a space for um mature students who perhaps don't really want to go down the academic journal route with bruising peer reviews and you know all that kind of thing or younger scholars who are just looking to get their foot in the door just start to get into the room of first world war discussion then i'm all for it and i would say that their work uh, is is always the the, the um what we might say the non-standard academic work 
that goes into these volumes is always of a very high standard. I'm, I'm blown away by how good it is. And it's great to see that first of all, studies are so vibrant and that there's such a range of people who still want to write about it. Well, I think that's a good place to wind up, actually, because, um, yeah, if people want to know the really the state of the art on research and writing about the British Army on the Western Front in the First World War, Spencer's volumes are a really excellent place to start. It will give you a snapshot of of where we are. Also, some ideas about future research. And, you know, sometimes chapters are part of a, of, of a bigger project. Sometimes they're standalone. Um, so that, I think, brings us neatly to a conclusion. So we have gone from Tim Travers in the 1970s uh, through to the current crop of people researching into the British Army on the First World War. And I think it's fair to say it's a vibrant field. It's a very rich field. And actually, in terms of scholarship, we have tremendous reasons to be optimistic about, about the future. I think the the future of the study of British Army in the First World War is in very good hands. Mm. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And uh, sometimes, just as a, a just as a, a, a note, a voice note to those who are listening in, sometimes we get students on, on the MA or even the undergraduates who say, "Oh, I'm really interested in the First World War, but everything's been done. I don't really know what what there is new to say." I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, there is staggering amounts of material that is completely untouched. Uh, and there's staggering amounts of material that needs to be revised. And uh, I hope that, that those of you who've listened through this series are inspired to go out and listen, uh, sorry, read some of these volumes we've discussed, even some of the bad ones. You can learn something from them. Uh, or maybe even if you're a researcher or writer in this field, chant your arm in it and contribute to this, this very, very much live and lively historiography. Right. Well, that concludes our three-part mini-series. I suspect we may come back uh, and a future podcast and for example look at the impact of the first world war centenary but we'll leave it there so from me professor gary sheffield goodbye and for me dr spencer jones goodbye <laughs>